there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? I'm Don Hall and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. was Lori McLean, co-writer and co-star of WNEP's The Wicked and the Sext, singing the opening number and, as you heard, had the cast announcement. On keys was Jeffrey L. Shavar, the composer. Now, fresh off the high that was Metaluna, it was time to launch another unheard-of project, a musical. Lori McLean and Jeff Shavar decided to collaborate on an extended version of her 20-minute piece written and performed for Monty Legrosjean Presents Sex at Tum Femme and make it a 1960s pop musical about sex, debauchery, and sex. The title of this ambitious piece was The Wicked and the Sex, which in typing production stuff, I quickly discovered the acronym for the show was TWATS. 
It was decided that Karen McKee, recently back from Boom Chicago, and Kate Hendrickson would co-direct the show, and that I would assist Shavar on musical direction given my vocal back vocal coach background. They cast the singers in the ensemble and then held auditions to fill in the blank spots, and we began. Telling the story of a gubernatorial candidate and his family, Twats centered on the introduction of a character whose sexual predator status was unmatched as he infiltrated first the politician's daughter, then his secretary, and then his wife. It was high melodrama, and the music Shavar wrote was catchy and epic and fun. I decided to book the famous door theater space in the Jane Addams Hull House on Broadway for a late night run, and we were scheduled to open in March. It might have just been me, but interpersonally, things were a little off. I mean, we all got together, seeing less of Joe as he was not in the cast, and drank and ate and rehearsed, but it felt a lot more like we were going through the motions than in the throes of creative bliss. Part of this had to do with the fact that neither Kate nor Karen had ever directed a musical before, so they brought in outside people to work on everything from the photography to the costumes to the choreography. And these were all nice people, very talented. Hell, the giant felt flower heads were worth the intrusion, but it felt strange putting so much in the hands of strangers. On top of that, there were a couple of highly dramatic goings-on that began to create a sense of strain within the ensemble. Without being too specific, because these are human beings that have lives, there was an extramarital relationship, some serious alcoholism at play, bruised egos, and a general sense of fatigue with one another that felt more like the waning days of Amin Watusi than the heyday of Armageddon Radio Hour. At one point, I mentioned it to Jason, who, aside from living with Kate, was absent most of the time after coming back from Boom Chicago. A year of doing this for no money is fine, he said. Two years, not a problem. Three years, starts to wear on you. Four years, now it feels like a job with people you want to keep liking but are finding it harder and harder to. Five years, forget it. I've been a fool to ignore you, Lois. I haven't been the most attentive husband. Well, it's never too late, Charlie. Seeing you here in the moonlight 
I love you more than ever. More than ever, darling. The pleasure of love is in the loving. Le plaisir de l'amour et de myself before 20 years of smoking and worn the high notes away and a scene between Pat Carton and Katie Cawson. Now, Shavar was an odd cat. He had a fascination with Zappa and the residents, a little bit awkward socially, but a marvel at the keys, primarily an improvising pianist. He could paint whole scenes with those 88 and, and was one of the most intuitive comedic musicians I've ever met. As a cast member of the Armageddon Radio Hour, the guy wrote catchy jingle after catchy jingle like a magician finding quarters behind our ears. So when it came time for him to finally write a full-blown musical, things just clicked. It didn't hurt that McLean was both an amazing musician in Earn Right and had one of the meanest, biting senses of humor of anyone I've ever known. When we were at Second City classes, her satirical slams on anti-abortionists were brutal. The team of two just worked. The lyrics, the tunes, the vocal arrangements fell into place. Now, granted, I wasn't there during that process. I mean, they could have been at each other's throats for all I knew, but I doubt it. It was 1997, and just about the time we were in rehearsals, Mike Myers came out with Austin Powers, and the 1960s camp thing was in the air. It was the right show, the right time. Now, up to that point... I had financially floated WNEP. If we lost money, it was my money we lost. I realized that when considering Jason's timeline, it was more appropriate for me to phrase it, a year of doing this for no money while paying a third of your annual salary is fine, two years not a problem, three years, etc. I started to feel put upon and began developing a martyr complex. I began to resent any suggestion that contradicted my opinion concerning business. On top of the money... I'd struggled through the past five years trying to make sure that no one left the ensemble, but unsuccessfully. Part of me was highly annoyed that Jason, Karen, and Phil left for Amsterdam. I understood it was irrational and stupid, but knowing that didn't stop the feeling that I'd been taken for granted. And the reality was that people were finding successes outside of WNEP, in part because of the work they did with the company, and it was more than reasonable that they capitalize on it. If you recall the very first mention of the scene in the 90s, it wasn't much different than at any other time. Artists creating art to be noticed by companies that could either pay them, make them famous, or both. I just felt left out because I wasn't looking for those opportunities because I was so busy with the opportunities in front of us. 
That aside, we rehearsed. The show was really good. It was smart, funny, plenty of well-written prose, with just enough sexual innuendo to satisfy both the high and lowbrow audience. We gained a couple of cats from our comedy sports connection, the aforementioned Chris Palmer, and a comedy sports superfan, Steve Polstrel. Steve wasn't a performer, he was a fan, and frequently came by with a cooler filled with water and soda just to watch things and hang out. We also acquired our very first theater intern in Don Smith. Don was a former improv student of mine from my days working in Beverly and was excited to be a part of this grungy DIY theater company. It was Don that kept me from feeling too sorry for myself because he was so goddamn talented and so fucking enthusiastic to do everything and anything in support of this show. Three weeks prior to opening, Famous Door decided to extend their late night show and we got bumped to a May opening. No one was happy, and a few people in the ensemble decided it was my fault that I didn't get a contract that prevented this from happening. It didn't really make any difference that Famous Door would not have budged on that option anyway. We continued to rehearse in spite of feeling that the show was already ready. I became a bit of an insufferable ass as the production end of things became more and more delayed. The Famous Door show was extended again, pushing our open date to the end of June. The aforementioned interpersonal high school dramatics got ratcheted up, and rehearsing began to feel like spinning our wheels. Both Karen and Katie handled it well, doing their level best to contend with over-rehearsed actors and a really bitchy producer. One week before we opened the show, for real this time, Jay Suko, who was in the cast, became infuriated about something Alita had done. I honestly can't remember what it was. I think it had something to do with a theater camp for the mentally handicapped, but I, don't quote me on that. But whatever it was, in a fit of rage that somehow became my fault, he quit the show outright. His understudy, the young and malleable Trevor Murphy, jumped in enthusiastically. The technical rehearsal three days before we opened was the longest and most frustrating tech in my considerable experience. Bob had never operated a computer go board, and each time he would get a cue set up that Karen approved of, it would mysteriously be erased. As midnight became 1 a.m. and we were still painstakingly lighting scenes, I decided to break the tension some. I went backstage, stripped down buck naked, and strolled around the stage as if I were inspecting the set. No one said anything. No one laughed. Everyone did their level best to ignore the fat, nude man. Eventually, I settled into a chair in the audience, and from the booth, McKee barked out, Could someone get Hall some socks? And the place blew up. That tech went until 5.15 a.m. What? You knew my wife before? You bastard! Stop right there. Not one word. Insult me or I'll ruin and Nice and slow Have a seat What the hell is Patience, this? my good man Thought I'd come to town and shake things up a bit Pay a visit to a dear old flame How did you meet Anne? <laughs> All part of my plan I recognized a picture when I saw the social column Fifteen years ago, Lois looked the same 
Once I had a winning hand You're just a con man here to cheat and steal It's bigger than you think Here you'll need this drink This campaign race you're running to Receive the nomination Mr. Governor It's time to make a deal A deal? This isn't some kind of a game show Yes, it is. Life is a poker game and Lady Luck's the dealer. You play the cards that you receive. Beware of the joker who will try to take your money. You try to call his bluff, but then he pulls the ace from his sleeve. So tell me what will happen when you're governor who will get the Lamberton Gazette but my newspaper you're crazy if you think don't call me I'll crazy I want a chance to go legitimate and play it on the level I just need someone who will believe in me what about it I'll play it square I ought to kill hey I've been fair with and everything will be fine unless you blow it, Charlie, because it's all a game. Yes, a game. Life is a poker game and Lady Luck's the dealer. You play the cards that you receive. Beware of the joker who will try to take your money. You try to call his bluff, but then he pulls the ace from his sleeve. Life is a poker game and Lady Luck's the dealer. You play the cards that you receive. Beware of the joker who will try to take your money. You try to call his bluff, but then... But then... But then I'll be waiting, Charlie. Tonight, Miss Pat. I'll be waiting as well. That was Life is a Poker Game, performed by Pat Carton, myself, and Laurie McLean. Well, we opened the show, and lo and behold, the extended rehearsal paid off. Twats was the most polished WNEP production to date. Not only was it well-received critically, New City said, plenty of wicked humor, full of lots of wonderful comic touch, torchy ballads so cool and hot they could pass for theme songs from the early Bond films. And the Chicago Reader said... Quote, a sophisticated and intelligent parody, the WDP cast is convincing and committed as a variety of martini-swilling, slim-tie-sporting early 60s types. Particularly good are Don Hall as the politically powerful but sexually impotent newspaper magnate Charles Bickfor, who suggests a combination of Charles Foster Kane and Homer Simpson, and playwright Laurie McLean as Bickfor's slinky, sex-starved assistant, confidently and intelligently performed. 
it made money on top of critical success. Despite the praise and the success of the show, the strain of five years of interpersonal conflict, of the siren call of other opportunities, it had chipped away the shine. The Wicked and the Sext was the last show that the ensemble known as Level Six worked on as a group. I want to thank Jeff Shavar for sending me those recordings. I just, as I was getting to this point, I just emailed him and said, do you have any of those? And within a week, he had them for me. And God damn, just listening to those songs brought it back in a way I just didn't expect. And if you're listening and, and you hear the same thing I do, you can contact Shavar and McLean through me. I would love nothing more than to see a remount by some amazing theater company of The Wicked and the Sext. It really was an extraordinarily cool show. Twats was produced in 1997, and as the decade hastened forward, while Level 6 was no more and the ensemble had splintered, Jen Ellison, an artist who wanted to be a part of the company so much that she became on, she came on as a part-time fundraiser for us, she'd had plans. She had a vision for what WNEP could be, and in the last three years of the 90s, began to secure an artistic voice that would push the company into uncharted territory and some extraordinarily excellent theater. Next week, we take a gander at Tattoo Number 7, inspired by my time hosting the Moth. And in two weeks, we rejoin WNP as Ellison pushes us into increasingly dark and spectacular waters. Thanks for listening. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Journeys.